Welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Welcome to the second episode of the podcast. This week we'll be talking about ACLS, which is a slightly smaller topic than abdominal pain, thank goodness. By the way, before we even dive into ACLS, most residency programs require you to do ACLS, so you'd likely have completed it already, um, but if you want to save yourself an extra day of the course, you need to do the renewal one-day course within two years of completing the full course, so get on it, it's about that time of the year. There are nine key features in this topic, however this topic is somewhat unique as we have a required dedicated course that addresses this topic. So I won't go into too much depth on it. We'll cover each key topic, but uh, heavy reference will be made to algorithms unfortunately not available on the Heart and Stroke website uh, when they, in my opinion, should be. But I'll link to other resources where you can find those algorithms as long as you or your institution is paying money. So I'll run through the key features in brief here. Key feature number one, keep up to date with advanced cardiac life support ACLS recommendations, i.e. maintain your knowledge base. Key feature number two, promptly defibrillate a patient with ventricular fibrillation, or VFib, or pulseless or symptomatic ventricular tachycardia, VTAC. Key feature number three, diagnose serious arrhythmias, so VTAC, VFib, supraventricular tachycardia, atrial fibrillation, or second or third degree heart block and treat according to the ACLS protocols. Number four, suspect and promptly treat reversible causes of arrhythmias, so hyperkalemia, digoxin toxicity, and cocaine intoxication, before confirmation of the diagnosis. Ensure adequate ventilation with a bag valve mask and secure the airway in a timely fashion. Number six, in patients requiring resuscitation, assess their circumstances i.e. asystole, long code time, poor pre-code prognosis, uh, living wills, to help you decide when to stop, aka avoid inappropriate resuscitation. Key feature number seven, in patients with serious medical problems or end-stage disease, discuss code status and end-of-life decisions. Decisions around resuscitation, feeding tubes, level of treatment, and readdress these issues periodically. Key feature number eight, Attend to family members, i.e. with counseling, their presence in the code room, during and after resuscitating a patient. And key feature number nine, in a pediatric resuscitation, use appropriate resources, i.e. the Breslow tape, patient's weight, to determine the correct drug doses and tube sizes. So let's dive a little bit deeper into each of these. So number one, keep up to date with ACLS recommendations. Um, unfortunately, Heart and Stroke Canada doesn't provide their ACLS algorithms online which I think is a terrible disservice to the medical community. Um, The only way to get those algorithms is to pay for them. You can get them through UpToDate. The link is in the show notes. Or do the course and get the book. You should do the course anyways, but I wish the algorithms were available. As mentioned above, the best way to keep up to date with the course, uh, with the ACLS course, is to retake the course every two years, which you'll probably be forced to do for credentialing, uh, even if you didn't want to. Key feature number two, promptly defibrillate a patient with ventricular fibrillation or pulseless or symptomatic ventricular tachycardia. So from a family medicine perspective, there isn't a whole lot of depth to this topic. This is firmly in the emergency medicine domain, but it's particularly relevant if you're planning a working rule, as I am. You need to know this stuff cold. 
It's critical that you recognize and diagnose VTVF early. In an unresponsive patient, first thing you should do is check for a pulse. If there's no pulse, second thing you do is attach an AED or manual defibrillator. VT and VF are shockable rhythms and should be defibrillated at your earliest possible opportunity, interrupting your first round of CPR if necessary, as in you put the pads on and immediately do a pulse and rhythm check, which is the only time during a recess, recess that CPR should be interrupted. We only do this because early defibrillation is the best and definitive treatment for shockable rhythms, and the second best treatment is CPR. Key feature number three, diagnose serious arrhythmias and treat according to the ACLS protocols. This key feature overlaps with number two to a degree. Pulseless VTAC and VF are obvious. You need a defibrillator. Stable VTAC, uh, SVT, AF, or second or third degree heart block will usually give you a moment to check your algorithms. ACLS has an adult Brady and Tacky algorithm. Three questions you need to ask yourself about any patient. Is the patient stable or unstable? Is the rhythm regular or irregular? And is it wide or narrow complex? Second degree heart blocks may require a pacemaker symptomatic if they're symptomatically bradycardic and third degree heart block will require a pacemaker. In the short term for symptomatic bradycardia, you can use an inotrope, preferably, or pacing from the defibrillator. Key feature number four, suspect and promptly treat reversible causes of arrhythmias before confirmation of the diagnosis. So hyperkalemia is a common one. Think of this in renal patients. A helpful way to remember the ECG changes with hyperkalemia is thinking of a string attached to the top of the T wave, and it pulls up on the T wave as the hyperkalemia worsens. Hyperkalemia will give you a tall peaked T wave, a widened QRS complex, which will eventually progress to sine wave and PEA. You should confirm hyperkalemia in any patient where you think, Mm, why is this going on? You got to think of pseudohypokalemia or hemolysis in the tube if there's no reason for the hypokalemia on history with the patient. Uh, immediate treatment to buy you time and stabilize the myocardium, especially if the potassium is over about 6.5. Calcium gluconate, 10 mils or 1 amp, infused over 3 minutes with cardiac monitoring. Uh, calcium gluconate is preferred over calcium chloride because you can give it peripherally and there's less chance of extravasation and necrosis. Give 10 units of regular or rapid-acting insulin as well over 60 minutes. You can put it in a uh, 500 mil bag of D5. Salbutamol has an additive, additive effect, although it's quite short-acting. You can give 10 milligrams or double NEB. If you have a moderate elevation in potassium and no ECG abnormalities, no immediate management is necessary. Look for the cause and fix the cause. If you have a high elevation of potassium, what we just talked about were all short-term treatments to shuffle potassium around the body, but then you need to actually get the potassium out. So how do you do that? Lasix, 40 to 160 milligrams IV, as long as they have reasonable renal function, and you can repeat that PRN. Uh, new to me in researching this topic is don't use K-exalate. There's a risk of bowel ischemia associated with the sorbitol, and F the FDA put out a warning in 2009 about that and it has poor evidence for use anyways. The only evidence is two small studies, poorly performed studies dating back to 1961. It's totally contraindicated to use K-exalate at all in any patient with an increased risk of valve ischemia. So those with post-op ileus, with gut motility issues, so chronic opiate use, including methadone, 
and those with renal dysfunction. What do you use instead of K-exalate? You treat the cause, which is usually missed dialysis, and so dialysis is the treatment for renal patients. I've got a link in the show notes from MCRIT with a decent little summary of why you shouldn't be using K-exalate. Next is digoxin toxicity. So digoxin toxicity is characterized by gastrointestinal distress, hyperkalemia, life-threatening arrhythmias, including increased automaticity and AV node blockade. Um, Why do you get this and why do you see it? Because it's got a narrow therapeutic index. Toxicity is more likely in the elderly and those who are renally impaired. You need to measure a level at least six hours after ingestion as it may be falsely elevated due to the time it takes for digoxin to migrate into the tissues. It has a huge volume of distribution, about 7.5 liters per kilogram. So most of it will leave the serum, but it takes a long time to do that. And 30% of it will remain protein bound in the serum. It's renally excreted with a half-life of 30 to 40 hours. Digibind is the definitive treatment. It's antibody fragments that bind the digoxin. It's indicated when there's cardiac arrest, obviously, uh, life-threatening arrhythmias, if you have a potassium over 5, um, or if, in the poisoning case, if more than 10 milligrams was ingested by an adult or 4 milligrams in a child. And remember, serum level is only useful at 6 hours post-ingestion. Chronic digitoxicity is more likely, probably in the family medicine context, is more likely to happen with intercurrent illness, especially with some degree of renal impairment. Um, features may include all those of acute digoxin toxicity plus visual disturbances. So they get reduced visual acuity, yellow halos, altered color perception. I've got a link in the show notes to a Life in the Fast Lane article on digoxin toxicity, which summarizes all this information. Next, cocaine. We know that cocaine causes myocardial infarction and angina, even in patients who wouldn't otherwise be at risk of MI due to the strong and unpredictable vasoconstrictive and vasospastic effects. Other effects include sympathomimetic effects, sodium channel blockade, blockade of presynaptic catecholamines, um, leading to catecholamine excess, as well as variable effects on potassium and calcium channels. With cocaine, you can get essentially any arrhythmia because of its diffuse effects on the heart, including increased cardiac oxygen demand, vasoconstriction, increased clotting tendency, increased atherogenesis. Um, You have to be ready for anything. And management in most cases is going to be the same as if they had the arrhythmia or the infarction without the cocaine. Uh, One modification to your usual treatment of arrhythmias or MI in the case of cocaine overdose or cocaine toxicity is not getting beta blockers. This is a theoretical risk, but one that you should avoid. And the risk is around worsening the vasoconstriction due to unopposed, theoretical unopposed alpha stimulation. One additional thing to know about cocaine is that it is yet another drug that can prolong the QT interval. Intervals above 500 milliseconds or so should be prophylactically treated with MagSulf. Um, And then general management as well. So treat the tachycardia and hypertension with benzos. Uh, Same with hypothermia if they develop it above a temperature of about 38.5. Watch for intracerebral hemorrhage and dissection. Don't give the beta blockers for this case as well because of the cardiac effects. Uh, Ventricular tachycardia should receive bicarbonate, and if that doesn't work, then intravenous lidocaine. Key feature number five, uh, ensure adequate ventilation and secure the airway in a timely manner. All you got to do is get in there and practice, practice, practice. There's nothing I can talk about on a podcast that's going to help you here. 
you need to be in these scenarios, either in practice and simulation or in real life. Key feature number six, in patients requiring resuscitation, assess their circumstances to help you decide when to stop. In brackets, avoid inappropriate resuscitation. So again, I'll refer you to another place on the internet that has excellent review of this. There's a Life in the Fast Lane article titled Cessation of CPR with a link in the show notes, which is excellent talking about all the different points you should consider and think of when doing a resuscitation and how long you continue for. Just remember that most resuscitation attempts are unsuccessful. You need to know when to stop. The decision to stop CPR should be tailored to the specifics of the individual case and is based on clinical judgment. The decision should be made by the team leader, but in consultation with other team members. You shouldn't ever quit a resuscitation until everybody's in agreement. If you're considering stopping CPR, continue all the way up until the point that you decide to stop. So maintain your resuscitation efforts until adequate information is available. Survival is highly dependent on the time to defibrillation and time to return to spontaneous circulation or ROSC, unless the primary reversible cause is present. Survival to discharge is minimal if the initial rhythm on arrival in ED is asystole or an agonal rhythm. If asystole, always check the leads, the gain settings and connections. It may not actually be asystole. And asystole for 20 minutes is generally considered non-survivable. So key questions to ask of whoever brings them in, whether that be paramedic, staff, or family. Was the arrest observed? What was the initial rhythm? If known, um, is there a likely cause? Is it reversible? How long did it take for CPR to start? How many shocks have they had? How much drug have they had? Time to first defibrillation? Do they have an advanced directive? What's their current state? I.e., do they have non-survivable injuries, like a 100% burn or catastrophic brain injury? What was their pre-morbid state like? Do they have chronic disease? How bad is that chronic disease? Are they demented, severely demented, mildly demented? Do they have disseminated cancer? Try to establish a baseline for this from the family or from the paramedics. And then talk to the family about an advanced directive. What does the family want? Does the family want to be present? So after all that, a general approach is to stop CPR after 20 minutes if there is no ROSC or viable cardiac rhythm reestablished and no reversible causes are present that would potentially alter the outcome. There are special cases where you shouldn't stop because there is a chance that you may bring them back from much longer resuscitation attempts. So you should continue CPR in young healthy people who have persistent VF until you fixed all the reversible factors. You should continue in a patient who's hypothermic, i.e. they're not dead until they're warm and dead. You should continue if there's a toxin involved that you may be able to reverse. So you can get full neurological recovery after four hours of CPR with some toxins. You should continue CPR if thrombolytics were given in order to give them time to work. And you should continue in pregnancy if the fetus is viable to allow for C-section. Key feature number seven, in patients with serious medical problems or end-stage disease, discuss code status and end-of-life decisions and readdress these issues periodically. This is core palliative care. This is core family medicine. Um, you need this as part of any long-term care work any care of the elderly work. In the acute situation of a patient with no available information, you'll need to lean hard on the family to elucidate the patient's wishes. 
The key in these situations is to have the discussions and have them documented ahead of time. It makes everything a lot easier. Have discussions with your code team as well as CPR progresses, especially if there's no information available from friends or family or on paper. Have discussions with uh, emergency department colleagues or intensivists. This should be a group decision. This should be a collegial consensus decision. In a young, previously healthy person, the decision is easier. You just do everything up until the point that you feel survival is extraordinarily unlikely. Key feature number eight, attend to family members during and after resuscitating a patient. This is something you need to be conscious of and something you need to practice. Spikes is a good framework here. Do yourself a favor and listen to the podcast episode called Managing Difficult Patients. It's episode 51 from the Emergency Medicine Cases at emergencymedicinecases.com. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. It's got an excellent discussion of how, when, and what the framework is for talking to patients. And last but not least, key feature number nine, in a pediatric resuscitation, use appropriate resources, i.e. the Breslow tape or the patient's weight, to determine the correct drug doses and tube sizes. So this one is straightforward. Almost all resuscitation medications and interventions are going to be size or weight based in the pediatric population. Breslow tape is a good first up to get that weight or size information or to estimate it when you start a resuscitation. Um, as an aside, the PALS course has a lot of content and will give you a lot of simulation practice with pedi- pediatric resuscitations. I highly recommend it and you'll use the Breslow tape lots throughout it. And that wraps it up for this week, ACLS. On to the next topic. Topic three next week is allergy. Thank you.